Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Many of the artists associated with the photographer and gallery director Alfred Stieglitz explored abstract portraiture in the early decades of the 20th century. These artists included Maurice Desaias, Arthur Dove, Marsden Hartley, Francis Picabia, Man Ray, and Stieglitz himself. But beyond a few watercolors made in 1917, Georgia O'Keeffe is not known to have extensively investigated this genre. In this lecture, held on January 22, 2017, at the National Gallery of Art, Sarah Greeno suggests that O'Keeffe may have made many more abstract portraits than have previously been identified, which have, as she herself admitted in the early 1970s, slipped into the world as abstractions. As I think many of you know, um, we plan these talks months in advance. And last summer, when I volunteered to speak uh, today about Georgia O'Keeffe, none of us had any idea uh, how my talk might coincide with recent events. Um, it does, though, seem appropriate um, to be speaking about O'Keeffe one day after hundreds of thousands of women and men marched on Washington and other uh, cities throughout the country as well as um, around the world, demanding that their voices be heard. O'Keeffe was, as I think many of you know, um, a passionately outspoken, fiercely independent woman who bucked the system her entire life. Uh, she was born in 1887, 33 years before women had the right to vote. And thus she lived during a time when many thought that a woman's place was in the home, not in the office, not in the studio, and certainly not in the White House. Um, she nevertheless, though, managed to establish herself not only as one of the country's leading artists, but also to carve out a life for herself that gave her both the freedom she needed and allowed her to be with the man she loved. My talk today, though, um, is not about O'Keefe as a role model. Uh, instead, the ideas behind it were sparked um, a year or so ago when an anonymous donor promised this painting to the National Gallery. It's a picture, as you can see, of a stylized bird flying above uh, clouds or mist that have been caught between two snow-covered hills. It's also a picture that has always intrigued me, as I felt that there was something more to it than its nominal subject, a bird, clouds, um, and hills. And it reminded me of something that O'Keefe wrote uh, in, in the 1970s. Earlier in her career, she had scrupulously avoided speaking or writing about her work. But in 1974 and then again in 1976, she published two books on her paintings and drawings. She might have been intrigued to do so uh, because her 1970 exhibition at the Whitney Museum in New York had focused renewed attention on her art. Seeking to control the conversation, she explained, the meaning of a word to me is not exact, as exact as the meaning of a color. 
Colors and shapes make a more definitive statement than words. I write this book because such odd things have been done about me with words. I have been told what to paint. I am often amazed at the spoken and written word telling me what I have painted. I make this effort because no one else can know how my paintings happen. Sketching out the arc of her development, she recounted short anecdotes about when she first began to draw, when she met Alfred Stieglitz, the photographer, gallery director, um, and later her husband, and when she first went to New Mexico. Her stories are terse, even teasing, and written with a very specific agenda. Some were designed to settle grudges. Across from a painting of a flower, she wrote, well, I made you take time to look at what I saw. And when you took time to really notice my flower, you hung all your own associations with flowers on my flower. And you write about my flower as if I think and see what you think and see of the flower. And I don't. Others were stories of triumph and vindication. Across from this picture of New York City, she recalled how thrilled she was when she and Stieglitz first moved into rooms on the 30th floor of the Shelton Hotel in New York. She wrote, I had never lived up so high before, and I was so excited that I began talking about trying to paint New York. Of course, I was told that it was an impossible idea, even the men hadn't done too well with it. <laughs> Asserting um, her unflappable independence, she continued, from my teens on, I had been told that I had crazy notions, so I was accustomed to disagreement and went on with my idea of painting New York anyway. When the painting was exhibited, it was sold on the very first afternoon, and she then coyly noted, no one ever objected to my painting New York after that. <laughs> Other stories, though, seem more like clues, casually yet intentionally sprinkled throughout the book. Among the more intriguing is this one, which she placed across from this painting gray-green abstraction. She wrote, there are people who have made me see shapes, and others I thought a great deal of, even people I have loved, who make me see nothing. I have painted portraits that to me seem photographic. I remember hesitating to show the paintings. They looked so real to me. But they have slipped into the world as abstractions, no one seeing what they are. What is she talking about? What are these abstract portraits that seem so photographic to her she hesitated showing them, yet have now slipped into the world as abstractions? Which pictures is she referring to, and who are the portraits of? And because she placed this provocative text across from this painting, are we to assume that it is an abstract portrait, and if so, of whom? These are some of the questions that I want to address this afternoon. I should say that at the outset, that while I'll offer some ways of thinking about this painting, I'm not 100% sure who it depicts. 
But I do hope to show you that it's part of a rich practice that O'Keefe pursued for many years of expressing her thoughts about people through emblematic portraiture. Moreover, I hope to suggest <clears throat> how this practice speaks to something more fundamental about how painting functioned for O'Keefe and what she hoped to achieve through her art. But first, a little bit of history. Um, there was recently an exhibition at the Bowdoin Museum of Art in Maine, in Maine that made very clear how numerous artists in the last 100 years have explored innovative ways of creating portraits. Painters, photographers, and sculptors as diverse as Marsden Hartley or Eleanor Anton, Edward Steichen, and Glenn Ligon have investigated abstract, symbolic, and conceptual strategies to allow them to go beyond appearance and express aspects of a subject's identity, personality, and accomplishments. This fascination with alternative ways to create portraits began in the early 20th century, and it was especially prevalent in the artists associated with Stieglitz. At his gallery, called 291 from its address on Fifth Avenue in New York, Stieglitz intentionally set up a dialogue between painting, sculpture, and photography, between European, American, and African art, and between the high art of someone like Picasso and the low art of children in order to encourage artists to break free of conventions, of accepted conventions. From the early 1910s through the 1920s, these artists associated with Stieglitz frequently debated the concept of portraiture, rapidly batting the idea back and forth like a ping pong ball um, from, for example, Stieglitz, as in his 1911 self-portrait of himself, to Man Ray, as in, as in his 1912-1913 portrait of Stieglitz, to Marius Desaius, as in his 1912-1913 depiction of Stieglitz, and finally to Francis Picabia, as in his 1915 portrait of Stieglitz. In these pictures, we see representations of Stieglitz evolve from a more traditional depiction that celebrates his head as the source of his artistic genius, um, to uh, a, um, a mathematical cipher, to a machine, a camera, um, no less. And we come to understand something about his charisma, his fertile intellect, his complex character, um, and as in the uh, Picabia here, um, his faith and love. And also as this camera um, is broken, this bellows here should be attached to the lens up there. Because it's broken, um, perhaps also we learn something about his unattainable aspirations. O'Keefe was keenly aware of these conversations uh, about portraiture. In the spring of 1916, when she was in New York and just beginning her relationship with Stieglitz, she saw Marston Hartley's sensational exhibition at 291. 
It included 40 abstract paintings, mainly portraits of Hartley's lover, uh, Lieutenant Karl von Freiburg, uh, a German military officer who was killed in the very early days of, of the war, um, as well as a few depictions of others, um, as in uh, this uh, portrait of the experimental American expatriate author um, and collector, Gertrude Stein. How 40 paintings um, fit into um, Stieglitz's 291 gallery, which was an extremely small space, as you can see in this uh, installation photograph, is really anyone's guess. O'Keefe herself was so overwhelmed on seeing this exhibition that she described it as like hearing a brass band in a small closet. When O'Keefe left New York later that spring, going first to Virginia and then on to Canyon, Texas, where she taught until 1918, she continued to mull over the question of modern portraiture. Like many other 291 artists, she was deeply impressed when Stieglitz sent her a copy of his publication, Camera Work, in the fall of 1916, that included two of Gertrude Stein's written portraits of Picasso and Matisse. Stein, who was an ardent supporter of modern art, especially Cubism and Fauvism, claimed to be doing in print what an artist like Picasso was doing in paint, that is, breaking down a subject into numerous parts um, seen simultaneously from different points of view. Um, in this piece, she described Picasso, and I'm quoting, as one whom some were certainly following. She went on to say, some were certainly following and were certain that the one they were then following was one working and was one bringing out of himself then something. Some were certainly following and were certain that the one that they were then following was one bringing out of himself then something that was coming to be a heavy thing, a solid thing, and a complete thing. While many people were totally baffled by Stein's prose, um, O'Keefe, who had a very idiosyncratic and elliptical way of expressing herself, when she read this, she wrote to Stieglitz, you know, those uh, things of hers make much better sense to me than most supposed to be intelligent combinations of words. They make ordinary prose seem so stupid. As O'Keefe investigated these concepts of portraiture, she made a handful of representational depictions of people. But it wasn't until a return trip to New York in the summer of 1917 that these ideas began to coalesce in her art. During that time, um, or that visit, which she described as one of the most wonderful days of my life, she and Stieglitz grew much closer. He photographed her for the first time, reinforcing the idea that a portrait need not depict a face to say something about a subject's character and identity. But it was not just Stieglitz who entranced O'Keefe, it was also the photographer Paul Strand. I just fell for him, she told a friend. She also told this friend that she was afraid to be left in the room with Strand, afraid not for what he might do to her, but what she might do to him. <laughs> the night she arrived back in Canyon after her trip, um, she made six abstract portraits, 
three of which um, have been identified through her correspondence with Stieglitz as portraits of Strand. She told Stieglitz that when her sister Claudia saw these portraits, Claudia said, why they look just like people, real people, different ones, no, the same people, naked people. O'Keefe continued, it made me feel uncanny, sort of crawly way down to the ends of my fingers, for they were people, and they seemed so real to her. I guess they are strand. Anyway, it's something I got from him. O'Keefe in these pictures did something quite different from the abstract portraits that we've seen by other members of the Stieglitz circle. Less cerebral and analytical, more intuitive and emotive, she didn't use equations to represent Strand, as Desaius had done in his portrait of Stieglitz, nor did she uh, speak about Strand by alluding to the attributes of his profession as a photographer, uh, as Picabia did, nor did she depict aspects of his dress or appearance as Man Ray did when he emphasized Stieglitz's glasses and his mustache. Instead, she created something much more abstract and personal that drew not only on her examination of abstract portraiture, but also her investigations into depictions of the human form, especially her fascination with Rodin's watercolors uh, and Matisse's sculpture that Stieglitz had exhibited at 291 and reproduced in camera work. Earlier in the spring of 1917, she made nude studies of herself reflecting these influences. And in 1916, she depicted um, a shrouded figure bent over in mourning, whose form bears a striking resemblance uh, to the one in the Strand portrait. The same night in Canyon, Texas, O'Keefe also made three watercolors that she identified only as portrait W. From the Stieglitz-O'Keefe correspondence, it's clear that W is Kindred Watkins, a married man who worked at a car dealership in Amarillo, and someone who both entranced and bothered O'Keefe at this time. I feel so at home with Watkins, uh, she wrote Stieglitz, and he is so funny. He told me, I want you to be to me, say to me anything you want to. I want to kiss you goodnight if you want me to, not if you don't want to. She continued, I've never felt the fence so completely down between myself and another. It was just the frankest sort of acknowledgement of the fact that I really, honestly like you immensely. Of course I wanted to kiss him, couldn't help wanting to. Gosh, it was so, so hot. A few days later, though, she was more equivocal. O'Keefe had openly flaunted the small town's codes of behavior by fraternizing uh, with students and inviting men uh, up to her rooms. But even she knew that the married kindred Watkins could be trouble. She described an afternoon they had spent driving around in his car, his yellow car, which entranced her immensely. Um, she wrote, queer the way I like him. Only he likes me, maybe that's not the word, too much. Twice he brought me back to town, stopped the car, and both times snapped his teeth right tight in the door of the car, and we rode on. 
It was very bad. He thinks I feel like he does and won't give in. And you know, I don't. O'Keeffe's candid remarks would seem to encourage us to interpret the forms in her portraits of Watkins as phallic, but I think there's more to them than that. She also wrote that Watkins gives me the feeling that he is feeling through all space, through all the world to satisfy a kind of hunger. The same day that she um, recounted their ride in the car, she also described the landscape they drove through. The plains were very blue, green, violet, and purple, soft, wonderful gray. We rode till almost dark, blue, green, lavender, and purple, unbelievably long horizontal streaks of it. When she sent these watercolors to Stieglitz, he questioned which way was up, whether they should be hung horizontally or vertically. Although they've subsequently been oriented like this, um, if we rotate them 90 degrees, um, and O'Keeffe in the 1920s frequently rotated her paintings 90 degrees from the orientation in which they'd been painted, in order to further abstract them from reality. If we rotate these watercolors 90 degrees, we see what she described. We see the unbelievably long, thin, horizontal streaks, the blue, green, and violet, and purple, the soft, wonderful gray, and the lavender. And through the swelling forms and flowing wash of the watercolor, we can also sense something that is feeling through space, as O'Keefe described Watkins. And I think we can see that the genesis for this picture was her drive with Watkins. Thus, the watercolors are not so much portraits of Watkins as, say, um, Desaius, Picabia, or Man Ray's pictures are portraits of Stieglitz, but rather expressions of O'Keefe's own sexual longing for him the feeling um, that made her, as she said, want to bang her head against the door, um, but also the experience that she had driving on the plains with him. The same could be said for her portraits of Strand. She clearly had a deep sexual attraction to him. The look in your eyes startled me so, she wrote Strand soon after meeting him in New York. I had just run from eyes. I had run like mad only to find a glimmer of the same thing in your eyes. But Strand's photographs um, intrigued O'Keefe as much as his persona. She wrote, I believe I've been looking at things and seeing them as I thought you might photograph them, making, Strand's photo making Strand photographs in my head. You people have made me see, or should I say feel, new colors. I cannot say them to you, but I think I'm going to make them. After she painted the watercolors, she wrote Strand, I sang you three songs in paint. I'd like you to, to hear them. It's all the same song sung different ways. Although there's not enough evidence to pin down the precise experience O'Keefe was alluding to in these uh, pictures, 
because she sings the same song, as she said, um, and repeats the same form and colors, a vertical shape that grows from a bright red to a, a rich blue-black surrounded by a glowing yellow and edged in purple. Because she repeats these same forms and colors over and over, it seems like she's trying to clarify an experience that she had that encapsulated her feelings for Strand. Thus, when O'Keeffe says her paintings are portraits of people, I think she's talking about something quite different from the other Stieglitz artists. She's talking about a picture that captures an experience she had which encapsulated her feelings for that person. She's making portraits of feelings and experiences, not people. Her looser use of the word portrait continued in the 1920s. Um, in 1924, the same year that Demuth began his so-called poster portraits that he made of Dove and Hartley and O'Keefe herself, the same year that Dove started his dazzling collage portraits, and a year after Stieglitz had made his metaphorical portraits of the painter Catherine Rhodes, and even O'Keefe herself, O'Keefe again used the word portrait in the title of a series of th three paintings, Portrait of a Day, First Day, Second Day, Third Day. Actually, this is First Day, Second Day, Third Day. Um, uh, again, she uses the word portrait in a different way from Demuth or Dove or Stieglitz, not to tell us about a person, but her experiences on three different days when she saw that magical moment when a leaf uh, broke free from a tree and slowly floated down to the ground. O'Keefe made several more abstract or emblematic portraits um, in these fertile years of the late 1910s and early 1920s when all the Stieglitz artists were exploring this idea. We can identify some through their titles. This one, uh, Abstraction Alexis, uh, is a picture that alludes to O'Keefe's beloved younger brother, Alexis Wyckoff O'Keefe. She described him as big, fresh, and free, the kind that fills a room to bursting. Contrasting the struggle between body and spirit, she continued, I have a great fear for a live man like that younger brother, such a damnable daring, but the conscience is very fine, so strong physically and so big, the very liveness of that bigness makes the fineness inside get lost at times. She chose to express that bigness and liveness by equating him to massive clouds that seemed to bubble up uh, from a vibrant horizon uh, and fill her canvas almost to bursting. She suggested the fineness of his conscience by painting the clouds white, a color both she and Stieglitz equated with purity. She painted this picture in 1928. From its similarities um, to this one done in 1924, which was probably made to commemorate her marriage to Stieglitz in that year, she may have made abstraction Alexis to celebrate Alexis's 1928 marriage to Elizabeth Jones. 
In January 1930, O'Keefe was stunned and deeply saddened uh, when Alexis died suddenly at age 38, probably from the lingering effects of a gas attack he'd suffered during World War I that had weakened his immune system. To honor him, she exhibited Abstraction Alexis in February 1930 in her exhibition at Stieglitz's gallery, surrounded by several paintings of crosses, as if creating an altar to him. The title of this picture, Lake George, Coat and Red, hints that it might be a portrait of someone. It depicts a swirling black-blue shaped topped by four orbs, three red and one white, rising up from what uh, might be a green hillside in front of a, a blue sky. As Stieglitz's dark cape lined with red was a key element um, of his signature sartorial style, we can safely presume that it's a portrait um, or that it alludes to him especially during the first few years of their relationship together, when they lived together, they both used Stieglitz's cape as a way to symbolize their union. In many of Stieglitz's photographs, he depicted O'Keefe um, wrapping herself tightly in his cape as if seeking his sheltering protection while pictures by others show us um, that Stieglitz often enveloped O'Keefe in his cape as if physically binding her to him. O'Keefe also made an emblematic portrait of Jean Toomer, a highly acclaimed figure in the Harlem Renaissance. Toomer was celebrated uh, for his acclaimed uh, 1923 novel, Cain, that mixes uh, poems and stories to address the African-American experience. He was the son of mixed-race parents. Uh, his father was born enslaved, and his mother uh, was a wealthy woman of mixed race. Toomer himself resisted racial classifications and he wanted to be identified as representative of a new emerging type of person who was a combination of all other races. Stieglitz and O'Keefe, like others in their circle, were entranced with Toomer's writing and his heritage and they both befriended him. Toomer visited them at their house in Lake George, New York in September and October 1925, where Stieglitz made these and several other portraits of him. Toomer also played a key role in O'Keefe's life again in December 1933, when he spent several weeks largely alone with O'Keefe at Lake George. O'Keefe had suffered a nervous breakdown in, 19, in January 1933, caused in large part by Stieglitz's affair with a much younger woman, Dorothy Norman, and conflicts O'Keefe and Stieglitz had about her desire to paint a mural at Rockefeller Center. Hospitalized for several weeks, she stopped painting and spent most of 1933 recovering. She was only just beginning to regain her physical and emotional health when Toomer visited her at Lake George in December of that, of that year. Some say that they had an affair that month. Whether they consummated it is up for debate, but nevertheless, they grew very close and Toomer clearly helped O'Keefe regain her confidence. 
Soon after he left in January 1934, she wrote to him saying that he had given her a strangely beautiful feeling of balance that makes the days seem very precious to me. I seem to have come to life in such a quiet and surprising fashion. A few weeks later, um, after she had installed an exhibition of her paintings at Stieglitz's Gallery in New York, she returned to Lake George and again wrote to Toomer. Repeating the ideas she had written to Strand several years earlier and the ones she'd use again in her 1976 book, O'Keefe confided to Toomer, there are paintings of so many things that may be unpaintable and still that cannot be so. The feeling that a person gives me that I cannot say in words comes in colors and shapes. She continued, I never told you or anyone else, but there is a painting I made from something of you the first time you were here. I hunted for it and hung it. It amused me to put it there. Meaning, she means she hung it in her um, 1934 exhibition. It is rather disturbing to take the best of the work you have done from the people you have loved and hang it that way and go away and leave it. Makes one feel strangely raw and torn. O'Keeffe's other letters to Toomer indicate that this is the painting that she's referring to. It's one of a pair of pictures um, of birch and pine trees that she painted in 1925, the year of Toomer's first visit to Lake George, and that she included in her 34 show. She may have been trying to explain this painting made from something um, of Toomer when she wrote to him in January 1934. After recounting a dream she had about her and, and Toomer and another woman, she said that she woke with a sharp consciousness of the difference between us. The center of you seems to me to be built with your mind, clear, beautiful, relentless, with a deep, warm humanness that I think I can see and understand, but have not. Merging her body with, with nature, she continued, my center does not come from my mind. It feels in me like a plot of warm, moist, well-tilled earth with the sh sun shining hot on it. Maybe the quality that we have in common is relentlessness. Maybe the thing that attracts me to you separates me from you, a kind of beauty that circumstance has developed in you. She addresses these very qualities in this painting. Like so many of her pictures of trees, the elegantly elongated, sinuous and supple branches and trunks of the birch and pine trees are exceptionally anthropomorphic. She transformed the prickly green needles of the pine tree here um, and here uh, into soft, greenish, slightly black shapes, endowed, as she said, with a deep, warm humanness. Like arms, they encircle and caress a warm, pink-colored birch tree that glows, like O'Keefe said, as if the sun were shining hot on it, creating an image of two quite different forces interacting with one another and even embracing one another, yet remaining distinctly different entities. 
Before we leave the decade of the 1920s, there's one more painting we should consider, and it's quite different from O'Keeffe's other emblematic portraits. Whereas birch and pine tree, pink, even uh, Lake George, coat and red, could masquerade as landscapes, um, or as O'Keeffe said, slip into the world as abstractions, radiator building night New York is um, as this red sign here um, uh, declares um, on the left a portrait of Alfred Stieglitz. It depicts the newly um, completed uh, radiator building which was designed by Raymond M. M. Hood and built for the American Radiator uh, Company recalling the glowing fire and black embers of the furnaces that supplied heat for radiators. The building was made out of black bricks symbolizing coal and gilded with gold ones symbolizing fire. And it was the first building to be electrically wired to be illuminated uh, at night. The building to the left was the Scientific American building. Um, and it was adorned at the, at the time O'Keefe made the painting with a red sign with its name in it that O'Keefe um, cleverly replaced with Stieglitz's. In addition, um, she alludes to Stieglitz in other ways in this picture. She depicted the radiator building at night, recalling Stieglitz's earlier nighttime views of the city. And she also utilized a number of photographic uh, effects in creating it, um, compressing the scene, for example, as if it had been recorded uh, through a telephoto lens and using halation, um, that uh, flare that a camera can record Cord, um, around a very bright uh, light in her depiction of the street lights at the bottom of the picture, making them glow like bouncing balls. The picture um, has been interpreted um, in a number of different ways with its floodlights uh, illuminating the night sky and other lights that seem to almost twinkle. Some critics have seen the painting as a joyous homage to both the drama and theatricality of the modern city and Stieglitz himself. They've noted that just as Stieglitz established O'Keeffe's um, career and, as it were, put her name in, in lights, so now she returned the favor, putting his name in lights and celebrating his importance. Others, seeing the, the strong phallic form of the, of the skyscraper, have interpreted it as a more ironic, even harsh critique. Stieglitz railed against the gross commercialism of America um, as epitomized by the signs uh, that littered the urban landscape um, and the massive skyscrapers that bore their corporate patrons' names. Yet he himself was a master showman who shrewdly exploited the very commercialism he had abhorred, garnering great publicity and high prices for O'Keeffe's paintings. I think, though, that the true meaning um, of this picture, at least for O'Keeffe, lies somewhere between these two poles. As the Stieglitz-O'Keeffe letters make patently clear, their marriage, like any long-term one between two strong-willed, creative, and fiercely independent people, was complex, filled with deep love, commitment, and respect, but also simmering with points of conflict that sometimes erupted into fear disputes. 
I've now shown you all the works by O'Keeffe that can be conclusively identified as abstract or emblematic portraits. However, I think there are more that have slipped into the world as abstractions, as O'Keeffe said, no one seeing what they are. What I'll offer next is pure speculation. I don't have solid evidence to confirm that the pictures that I'm going to show you um, are portraits of experiences people engendered in O'Keeffe, just hunches and a few clues that are, that are hardly conclusive. Um, in my defense, I can only say that I've spent much of my life studying Stieglitz and O'Keeffe's art and lies and their relationship, and I feel, rightly or wrongly, that I've come to know them quite well. But from this point on, caveat emptor, buyer beware. Um, in 1930, when O'Keeffe returned to New Mexico for a second time, she painted black and white and black and white and blue. Both depict white triangular forms piercing a dark arcing shape. In black and white and blue, the black arcing form is set against a strong blue vertical shape that recalls the crosses uh, that O'Keeffe frequently painted in 1929 and 1930. She believed that these crosses were essential to understanding the New Mexico experience, as they encapsulated not only the faith, passion, and intensity of life in the Southwest, but also its mystery, um, its, uh, its impenetrable sense of otherness. Anyone who doesn't feel the crosses, she told the critic Henry McBride, simply doesn't get that country. She, and even more though, she insisted, for me, the painting, for me, painting the crosses was a way of painting the country. That is, they are, in a sense, portraits of the country. But black and white and blue um, isn't really about crosses, and there's something more to both it um, and uh, black and white, sorry, um, uh, than that. In 1976, when she reproduced black and white in her book, she cryptically wrote that it was a message to a friend, and if he saw it, he didn't know it was to him and wouldn't have known what it said, and neither did I. Noting the similar triangular forms in both this painting um, and Edward Weston's 1921 photograph, The Ascent of Attic Angles, one art historian has speculated that the friend was Edward Weston. However, while the forms are similar, and while Weston and O'Keeffe briefly met in 1922, they were not close friends. They never corresponded, and they rarely saw one another uh, again after 1922. I think the friend is someone else. When O'Keeffe first went to New Mexico in 1929, she made many new friends. Dorothy Brett, Charles Collier, Marie Garland, Spud Johnson, Gustav Eckstein, Ansel Adams, but none intrigued her more than Tony Lujan, Mabel Dodge Lujan's Native American husband. When she first arrived in Mabel's compound in Taos in 1929, she excitedly told Stieglitz, Mabel's place beats anything you can imagine. It is simply astonishing. There is no end to it, and Tony is really its crowning glory. He is very grand. 
She was fascinated with Tony's clothes, as well as the blankets worn by other Native Americans, but most especially she was intrigued with his calm, dignified, often inscrutable, and deeply spiritual nature. One of the fine things about the Indians, she wrote Stieglitz, is a kind of quiet, calm gentleness. But Tony's calm must win. Mabel picked one of the prized men of the tribe. He is so big and dark and handsome and sad. In much the same way that the crosses represented that sense of impenetrable otherness that O'Keefe felt about New Mexico, so too did Tony Lujan. They got on very well. Um, she told Stieglitz she had a curious kind of under, that they had a curious kind of understanding that lets the spots where we don't understand just slide. She spent a great deal of time with him in 1929, traveling throughout New Mexico with him and Rebecca Strand. Tony singing, as she wrote, his monotonous, soothing sort of hi-yi song. They spent so much time together, in fact, that Mabel became jealous and accused them of having an affair. The following summer, when O'Keefe returned to Taos she made these, and made these two paintings, she told Stieglitz that Mabel arranges quite well that Tony and I never meet. It is quite funny. Although they didn't see much of one another that summer, um, they did continue to meet despite Mabel's protestations. We can see parallels between O'Keeffe's paintings and photographs of Lujan, between O'Keeffe's paintings and photographs of Lujan from the time that show him wearing a blanket. The arc of his head, the line of the blanket on his forehead, the folds of the blanket on his chest, all echo shapes uh, in, uh, in the, the paintings. His erect posture is also similar to the strong verticality of the blue form in black and white and blue. As with the portrait of Jean Toomer, O'Keeffe seems to be addressing this juncture of two very different forces in these paintings, using contrasting forms and colors, in this case, black and white, she presents one white, angular form that pierces into a darker, more fluid one. If these pictures are about Tony Lujan, we must ask ourselves if it's significant that she used a similar strategy to address her feelings for him, a Native American who was straddling two cultures, as she has for Jean Toomer, an African-American man who also inhabited two worlds. I think it is. We know that she was attracted to both men, she, but she regarded them both as different from her. We know, too, that she explored this idea of difference and otherness with each of them, and we know that she and Toomer talked about race in 1933, and that Lujan instructed O'Keefe on the ways of na the Native Americans taking them to dance to Mesa Verde and other important cultural and historic sites. But it's also important to note that O'Keefe herself said she didn't know if the friend whom she addressed this message to would have known what it said, and neither did I. 
This is a critical point for the very act of painting for O'Keefe was a process of discovery and clarification. It was a way of coming to terms and trying to know her feelings for people and places. As a highly intuitive and subjective artist, she didn't have a clearly articulated conceptual strategy when she began to paint. Instead, as she explained to Stieglitz the year before when she first got out to New Mexico, she wrote, I seem to be hunting for something of myself out there, something in myself that will give me a symbol for all of this, a symbol for the sense of life I get out here. She had literally imposed her body on the Lake George landscape in 1919, showing the view of the distant mountains um, as seen above her bent, uh, bent knees, um, literally imposing her body uh, on the landscape in order to try and merge herself with the land as she sought to figure out her place in this new world where Stieglitz had taken her. Later in the 1920s and 30s, she did this in a more subtle and sophisticated way, scrutinizing the outside world to find and merge her body with the land and express the feelings that it and people engendered in her. This brings us to 1933, the year she painted gray-green abstraction. I wish I had more clues to decode this picture. What we do know is that it was made on her third trip to New Mexico during a difficult time in her relationship with Stieglitz. Although they were still very close, in the late 1930s um, and early 1931, um, Stieglitz had grown increasingly entranced with Dorothy Norman, and he did little to hide his affection for Norman from O'Keefe. He made numerous photographs of Norman during the winter of 1930 and 31, depicting her as frail, meek, um, and adoring, um, and we might add, unclothed and clearly lying in bed. There, in stark contrast to the few pictures that he made of O'Keefe at this time, which present her as mature and accomplished, but also wary and aloof, not open and forthcoming as she had been once been with him. When O'Keefe was in New Mexico in the summer of 1931, she stayed with the heiress Marie Garland and her much younger uh, fourth husband, uh, the filmmaker Henoir Radekiewicz, um, at Garland's ranch in Alcalde, New Mexico. The large, um, undifferentiated mass of the sand hills near Marie's ranch had fascinated O'Keefe the year before when she first discovered them, and gray-green abstraction may in part derive uh, from her exploration of those forms and colors. It may also derive from two drives she took to Taos. On the first drive with Garland and Radekiewicz, they went, she wrote, through strange little New Mexican towns, past sand hills, red hills, gray hills, green hills. She told Stieglitz she found this part of New Mexico disorienting. There is something about this country that makes you feel you don't quite know where you are. That same sense of unknowable or indeterminate space that I think we can see in this picture. The second time when she and Radekiewicz drove to Taos alone one night, 
he opened up to her about the problems in, in his marriage with Garland. The talk was remarkable, O'Keefe told Stieglitz. It was curious, driving through the night slowly, the road so wet, talking, as I have a notion he probably never talked to anyone before, all about as I knew it, his telling me rather sweet, but because he is so male and at the same time so sensitive. I think it's quite possible that gray-green abstraction is an abstract portrait of Rada Kiewik. She was very fond of him. She told Stieglitz he doesn't do things by halves. At the time, Rada Kiewik was working on his own abstract autobiographical film titled Portrait of a Young Man in Three Movements. Transposing the real world into abstract patterns, he used clouds, reflections on water, and smoke and leaf patterns to visually express, as he wrote, thoughts and feelings going on within me. O'Keefe saw outtakes from the film in the summer of 1931, and she told Stieglitz that she thought it included such fine material. Employing a similar visual strategy to Rada Kiewik, she used, subtle, almost she used a subtle, almost monochromatic palette, as Rada Kiewik had done uh, in his film, and she rotated the sand hills 90 degrees to render them more abstract um, and flattened. The, picture, the result is a fairly symmetrical picture um, with its left side mirroring the right, yet it's also a picture that I think if you look carefully um, seems to be cracking at its base like both O'Keefe's and Radekiewicz's relationships with their spouses. This brings us back to the first painting we saw. Oops, sorry. Um, here you can see I think a little bit better this crack that she's um, imposed in the bottom of the picture. This brings us back to the first painting we saw, along with another one that was made also in 1946. O'Keefe made only eight paintings that year, far fewer than any other year in the last decade, no doubt the result of Stieglitz's death that summer. On July 10, 1946, when she was in New Mexico, she received a telegram telling her that Stieglitz had <coughs> suffered a massive stroke. She flew back to New York immediately, as did Stieglitz's mistress, Dorothy Norman, who was vacationing in Woods Hole. But Stieglitz never regained consciousness and died on July 13th. After burying his ashes under the roots of a tree at Lake George, O'Keefe returned to New Mexico on October 1st and stayed there for two months. She made these pictures then, perhaps alluding to herself, Stieglitz, and Norman, the first picture depicts three bare, almost seemingly naked and vulnerable trees standing in the snow. In the center is a darker and perhaps older tree, the least supple of the three, leaning um, slightly towards the lightest and perhaps youngest um, but, but least clearly articulated tree on the right-hand side here. Um, on the left is a slightly darker tree, but more a fully described tree with sort of almost very human-like limbs that grows out of the base of the darker one, um, yet leans away from it as if branching out more on its own. 
O'Keefe made no comments about this picture, so it's impossible to know if she saw it as a joint portrait of herself, Stieglitz, and Norman. Yet the articulations of the forms and the fact that she painted this picture so soon after Stieglitz's death, when she was still processing his relationship with Norman, coupled with our knowledge that he, she had previously used trees as symbols for people, all of these things suggest to me that it might well be a portrait about the relationship of the three of them. The other painting from 1946 uh, is, I think, a more obvious portrait as it contains numerous allusions to Stieglitz. O'Keefe noted that on the day she made a black, um, a black bird with snow-covered red hills, she had been startled to wake up and find the hills near her home at Ghost Ranch covered with snow and blackbirds flying above them. She'd painted the red hills many times before and indicating once again how she anthropomorphized uh, nature, she described this picture um, as just the red hills, um, as, as just the arms of the red hills holding up the sky. Yet when she painted uh, the red hills covered with snow that morning, she didn't depict the blackbirds that she'd seen flying above them, um, but rather one single stylized bird, something that resembles a black crow, a much bigger bird than a blackbird, um, and perhaps a clear reference to Stieglitz's nickname, Old Crow's Feather, a nickname that he had given himself um, many uh, years earlier. There are other allusions um, to Stieglitz, as if to invoke um, his photographs. O'Keefe used a fairly limited palette, uh, mainly black and white and blue again. And the subject itself, clouds um, or mist, nestled between two mountains um, is very uh, reminiscent of the numerous photographs that Stieglitz made of the clouds and mist rising above the hills at Lake George. O'Keefe even made uh, the form of the bird resemble a mustache, much like Stieglitz's own. Further, as if to indicate the pattern of her relationship with Stieglitz in the last decade, where they had spent several months apart each year, she went on to describe the bird in this picture as always there and always going away. The picture is also reminiscent of a poem by their friend Wallace Stevens, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. It is a poem that, Ste that Stevens insisted was not meant um, to be, as he wrote, a, collections, a collection of epigrams or ideas, but sensations, much like O'Keeffe's conception of the nature of abstract portraiture. With almost cinematic clarity, Stevens' poem reveals the multiple ways in which we can perceive a blackbird. He focuses first on the eye of the blackbird as the outside observer. Among 20 snowy mountains, the only moving thing was the eye of the blackbird. Then he metaphorically connects the blackbird with himself. I was of three minds, like a tree, in which there are three blackbirds. And then, just as O'Keefe does in her abstract portraits that depict the union of the body, the spirit, and nature, so too does Stevens connect the blackbird with all things. A man and a woman are one, 
and a man and a woman and a blackbird are one. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.